Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Justin Vandenbrink, sales director at TGS. Justin, thanks for coming on the show, bud. Yeah, no problem. Good to be here. Awesome. What a massive, richly appointed studio you have here. Oh, Fine leather-bound books. Well, you know, nothing but rich mahogany around here. It's it's amazing, actually. I, to, I, watching the anchor man, he inspired me to just have nothing but the best. Yeah, right? and I, and the, and you you've got all the senses, including like the smell. It really smells good in here too. So yeah, well, I'm glad you appreciate it because some folks come in here and they they just don't recognize what's happening. But nothing but the best for Justin and and myself. Obviously, we got Justin squared here today. Yeah. So actually, this is pretty refreshing. Another BC boy paving the way in Houston oil and gas, except I feel like our roles should be reversed because you're the one with all the media experience, such as news reporter and and video journalist. So speaking of news reporter, are you a fan of the movie Anchorman? Have you seen it? So, of course. I mean, I have it. I have a minivan because I've got kids. Right, I seen and, you roll up in that. Yeah. I was I was impressed, man. You you rocked. You were you embraced the uh, the the parent life. And obviously. I saw you roll up in not a minivan. We're not <laughs> going to tell people what you have, but it's much nicer. Hey, um, I sell dirt in a bag. What can I say? <laughs> I have probably the ratio of DVDs for my child to me is ten to one, and the one <laughs> yeah. is Anchorman. So I'll put it on the DVD player. Yeah. When the kid's not in the car. Yeah. And so like if I have to go say it's lunchtime and I have to get something quick to eat at Wendy's, yeah. I'll put on Anchorman and then I'll sit in the, my back seats and watch Anchorman <laughs> in my minivan. Good for you. So old habits die hard, I guess. Do you ever take the wife back there and watch it together? She's not so much. She likes fitness videos for some reason. Shocking. But yeah, it's 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 an acquired for I mean, Will Ferrell in general, I find him and Adam Sandler movies, you watch them the first time and you want to throw them against the wall. Right. And they have to marinate. And then you come back to it and you go, Oh, that was funny. And then you watch it a couple more times and then it's like you you're 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 hooked. Yeah, and then every sentence in the movie is a one-liner. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, where you don't notice it right away. And it's a bit like every, there's bits on top of bits on, like Step Brothers, for example. Oh, buddy. Yeah, I right? loved it, yeah. I hated it the first time. I was like, this is kind of stupid. And then it grew on me. And now when it comes on every day on TV, I'll, I'll watch it. Right. Well, one staple movie that we have in our household is Elf. It's probably my favorite Christmas movie, but it's like every year I watch and I just, I giggle the whole time. And then my wife or my, my daughter's only four and a half or three and a half, sorry. And she's watching, but she's not, she, she doesn't have quite the attention span, but I'm trying to make sure that like she embraces the elf movie for Christmas and amongst all the other great Christmas movies out there. But mm-hmm. again, I like the comment on Will Ferrell cause he's, he's, I think he's, he, what he's done for comedy is great. And I hope that he comes out with something here soon. Cause I'm kind of missing him. Yeah. I mean, I really like him. Nice. So actually, I was in your neck of the woods recently. So you, you know where our mission is. Mm-hmm. And I went for a buddy's bachelor party there and we went sturgeon fishing. Mm-hmm. And if anyone wants to go sturgeon fishing, 
I don't suggest it if you're looking for action. If you're looking to just drink beer and hang out in like rainy, crappy weather. Hold on, isn't that what fishing is? Like this this whole this whole premise that fishing is actually catching fish. Right. It's like two percent of the time is catching fish. Yeah, that's true. But I like to at least cast and pretend like I'm doing something in the midst of drinking beer. But I mean, the weather was miserable, and so it was funny. I thought so. Knowing my buddy, he's from Calgary. His name is Mitch Winnick, just a gem of a guy. Mm-hmm. We, I met him in Denver and we met just going out. He's in sales, you know, partying. And he's the type of guy that's like been to Vegas every year since he was like 16, <laughs> loves to go to the hot places, loves the mm-hmm. beach. So when he said bachelor party, of course, I was like, well, time to get the beach bodied ready or some pool parties. No, we went to Mission. It's just funny because he lives in Denver. We had buddies flying in from all over the place. And, you know, if you're listening, I would have rather went to San Diego, which is where our wives are going. They got this house that looks like something on cribs and they're going to San Diego, this beautiful beach house. And so, Mitch, if you're out there, I would have much rather that. But it was your day and your call. So I'm glad you had a good time because we went. If anyone knows Vancouver and Orange Number 5, we had a blast. So I'll just leave it at that. You, Van Halen. And so I, I kind of, well, I did, I went to university in Vancouver and number five orange was part and parcel when rock bands need to record an album. Okay. Some of the best recording studios in North America were based in Vancouver. Okay. So the reason the recording studios were based there was because of the Vancouver lifestyle, let's say. Yeah. So back in the day, like Aerosmith, Allison Chains, Van Halen, they would come up and they would get the full meal deal because they could record in the day and then party at night. So. Okay. Interesting. I learned something new today. Well, I didn't see them there, but nonetheless, it was an interesting play and ride home the next day. So you're, okay. So you're obviously, you're, so you're, were you born in BC? No, I, I'm an Alberta boy originally, born, okay. in, born in Edmonton. Yeah. Okay. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. So do you ever, I mean, you obviously have been here in the States for a while. Do you miss back home? The, the real answer is no. I miss Vancouver in the spring and in the fall. Yeah. I will eventually have a place back in Vancouver when all of this, when I retire. Yeah. But Calgary and and Alberta in general, these days with global warming, it feels like you're either coming into or coming out of winter all the time. Yeah. So there's sludge on the road, your car gets dirty. And then as spring turns into summer, there's like two months where the grass might be green and your car might be clean. Yeah. (laughs) And then all of a sudden fall and winter hit and you're back into the, you know, it's like Game of Thrones. Winter is coming. Yeah. Always. Always. Yeah. So I was a winter sport guy. I was on the Pascapoo ski team. Oh, nice. GS and, and was part of the Olympics for 88. Oh, our, wow. our Canada Olympic Park was rebranded. Yes. And we did all this stuff as the, as the opening ceremonies at the park. And I was super immersed in both the skiing culture and then the snowboarding culture. Nice. And then once I moved in 2008 to Houston, I got it out of my blood. Yeah. I don't care if I ever see snow again. Right. So it's funny you say that because obviously, so growing up in Canada, my goal was to, like growing up in high school, I always wanted to play football in the States. Well, that didn't happen. So when I got the opportunity to move to the States, I was super happy because I've I always wanted to move to the States, get closer to the equator, get away from the shitty weather. All Canadians want to go to heat. I yeah. have this theory. Yeah. Born in cold, move to heat. Yeah. Born in heat, move to cold. Yeah. You ask any native Texan, yeah. and when, when, when they say, oh, where are you from, Canada? They go, oh, I love Canada. Oh the, oh, the winter, and oh, it's so nice and cool. And I'm like, have at it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, so I'll swap with you any day. Yeah, so you said you grew up skiing and snowboarding quite a bit. Where at? So... 
you know, the typical places west of Calgary. Those were my haunts. So yeah. Lake Louise, right. Sunshine, a little bit of Fortress and all that. And then when I moved out to Vancouver, you know, you'd do Whistler and you'd also do Vancouver's kind of rim to the north by a small mountain range. Yeah. So there's there's literally you can you can ski in the morning and then kite surf in the afternoon down in the bay. Nice. So, but that was kind of out of my blood by the time I got into university. I was already kind of slowly transitioning away from cold to warm sports and doing that sort of stuff. I gotcha. Yeah, I grew up on the mountains too. When I was so I born in Calgary when I was two years old, my mom had me at Nikiska doing ski lessons. And so, yeah, I, it was hilarious. I grew up doing that. And then when I moved to Vernon, Silver oh. Star, obviously. So spent, you know, numerous weekends on the mountains. You know, Silver Star is where I initially learned how to ski. Okay. I have pictures of me. My family used to meet up. We had we had family in that area as well. When I was really tiny, like maybe five, six years old, there's photos of me wearing this really awful fuzzy red jacket and I look like a tomato going down the ski hill. Yeah. <laughs> and I learned how to, you know, you point your skis, you do the, the pizza. The pizza. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I just picked it up. And we were in those back then Silver Star was this was back in the seven late seventies. And Silver Star had A frame cabins on the side of the hill. And that to me is one of the best memories of skiing to date. Even the lodge feel very rustic, A frame, the wood fire that and the snow where there's so much snow. Right. So awesome. No, it's uh, incredible. The only thing I miss about the snow is between Christmas and New Year's. Mm-hmm. So I've yet to have a snowy Christmas since moving down here in 2009. So the yeah. wifey and I and the family are trying to get to Colorado, Breckenridge, Vail, something like that. Because that part of that's what I really miss about the snow mm-hmm. and sort of the magical moments of the quietness. Yeah. yeah, it's there's something about it, you know, being cold, going inside, warming up by the fire, having some drinks. That's really about the only part. But the, you know, the 360 days other than that, I don't want to see it. Yeah, like my buddies down here, they they're they got into snowboarding when I first moved down. They were like, oh, you snowboard? Let's go to Colorado. And I was hesitantly I was like, OK. I'll go. And, you know, these guys start out and they're really bad. And so when I got there, I was like, after a couple of days, we had like a four or five days there. They were rabid about getting up, going to the hill and getting every minute. <laughs> yeah. And I was rabid about two runs, come back, sit in the pub for the rest of the day, yeah. put on, you know, my fake cast right. and pretend I'm like injured, whatever. <laughs> but I did realize that now I like going on snow vacations for four days because I know I can get away from it. I'll do snow like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I would rather live in heat and go to snow for a vacation than the reverse. For sure. No, I can identify with you there. Well, look, let's take a quick break. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated honestly good or bad or if you want to hit me up on linkedin and tell you how much tell me how much you love the show or if you want to see something if you have any questions i'm all ears so please hit me up and if you have a great story or an idea for a show or just any questions again just hit me up on linkedin so let's get started so how did you get from bc where it's predominantly anti-oil and gas to being down here in houston texas so what's justin's story I think I started out in the mining industry. So my my undergrad in geology was more structural and related to mining, like hard rock, we say. But because I came from a soft rock, oil and gas family and province, my intent was to always go back to Calgary. The reason I was at UBC in Vancouver was because my family had moved to Prince George in, Van, in BC in my late in my high school career. 
So I was eligible to apply to the nice universities right. on the coast, right? So I was all about that. Yeah. Um, at the end of my four years, I was told after working in the mountains for, you know, the Geological Survey of Canada and mapping on 1 to 250 scale and looking for volcanic massive sulfides and doing helicopters and getting chased by bears, I was like, I want to get back into the oil and gas business because, you know, in, in my opinion hard rock or mining is first about geology and then business comes second. Gotcha. And then it's reverse in oil. Oil is all about business first. And oh yeah, there's a geology component. <laughs> and, when, and when you think about it, it's, it's visually like that because in mining, you can walk up to an outcrop and you can see the strike, the dip, the tile, the type of rock, you can hammer it. You can physically touch the geology. Right. When you're in West Texas, you don't see anything but maybe a Wendy's or a McDonald's, and then underneath is the oil at depth. Right. Right? Yeah. It's dust bowl, and there's people working, but you've never, you never actually touch what you're playing with. Right, right. It's, yeah, it's hard to, most, I know, a lot of people, unless you can put your hands on it, they have a hard time either appreciating it or understanding it for, for that matter. So, I mean, yeah, I can see what you're saying there. So, I mean, at what point did you actually find a passion for geology and decide that you were going to pursue a career in the subsurface world? I was always interested in geology and geography. I had a great teacher in high school who was very passionate about geography. And when I went to university, that passion carried through. And when I took my first intro into geology classes, I was hooked. And the beauty about geology is, again, you can build a career out of geography and understanding nature in general. Show me another degree in bachelor's where you can you can immediately get into a workforce and make pretty good money right away sure and i come from a long family of sales people i would say because my my dad emigrated from europe in holland back during the war mm -hmm. and all of his brothers and sisters all 12 of them moved to canada and in order to survive they had to hustle and so mixing hustle and business and and communication and mixing in a bit of science and, and finding a career that, that would offer me both of these. It was so awesome. I loved being outside and not inside. So biology, for example, you're in a lab, you got a coat on. Yeah. It's a lot of specifically in front of you with instruments type stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Geology is, is the reverse. You can, be, you can be hiking, you can be skiing, and still understanding what your degree gave you in terms of education. Right. So I loved putting those pieces together. So that was the passion for me was I could see my degree in the horizon. Right. And then I could, I could play with it and then find a job that, that worked with that. And then to follow up on that, I moved into Calgary and, and I loved the business aspect of oil and gas. And to this day, it's my, I just, it's so great. Other than water, I mean, you need oil to survive. Of course. And how you go through the process of finding where hydrocarbons are, getting them to surface and then getting them to your clients and getting them to the public and all of the little parts of that play in between and how you sell that to different people is just exciting to me. I love it. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating industry. And I mean, you do a great job of selling me on geology. And the only thing I remember from geology is, <laughs> is that I was 
funny enough, so I was terrible at drawing and analyzing isopac maps. So when I was at SAIT, we took, you know, historical geology. We took and SAIT is? Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, right? So yeah. in Calgary, it's the, it's our tech school. Right. So you can do the two-year sort of engineering technology degree, and there's there's geology classes. And, and I'll be honest with you, that was my least favorite. I mean, it was – I found that the people that did really well in that class had a very artistic ability and not just – I mean – not only were they artistic and they did well at the isopac max, but they were good at like memorizing and, and mm-hmm. seeing trends and just being able to like recognize what was going on. And I had a terrible time at doing that. So mm-hmm. I was like the flashcard guy trying to just memorize and cram mm-hmm. as much shit in my head as possible. So is, I mean, can you identify with that at all? If you talk, we always joke the difference between a geologist and a geophysicist is a geophysicist is good at math. So when you're in geology, In some universities, it's actually considered part of the arts, not the science curriculum. Sure. And and it goes back to what you're talking about. You have to be able to read between the lines. There's a lot of gray area in geology and interpretation. Right. And if you are a math guy and you like zeros and ones and you're binary, good luck because your head starts to blow up. Yeah. Because you can't... You can't integrate between. You're like, uh, it's not this, then it has to be this. Well, rocks are not like that. That's exactly how I am. So that's yeah. why I hated it. Yeah. And and when I started, for example, when I was working for the geological survey and they drop you on a mountainside and they say, okay, go map this rock face. Well, you walk up to a rock face and, and first off, you have to decide where one lithology starts and stops and where the other, you know, where when one stops and one begins. Mm-hmm. And then... Sometimes it's not that clear because you can go through phases, right? Rock will become, for example, in, in igneous rocks, the, the, the difference of, of chemical composition and minerals will slowly gradationally change. Right. And all of a sudden it's like the frog in, in boiling water. He doesn't know he's boiling and then he's boiling. And you're like, well, I know that looks like this rock, but I have to decide where I'm going to put a line between rock X and rocks, rock Y. Of course. And it just, it, to start, because you come from a science background and you're trained, you get really frustrated and you're going, I need, I need zeros and ones. And then after a while, it's almost like you get Zen and you just accept that geology can be gray. Right. And then the world is much easier. And you're talking about isopac maps and net pay and porosity maps. Yeah. Same thing. If you look at a classically trained geologist, before we had all the software and all that, he had a big map on his table and he had a bunch of pencil crayons <laughs> yeah. and he went to work and he knew some points, but he had to fill in all those kind of grayish areas with his best guess. Right. And you get really good at that or I, you don't. Right. Yeah. And it's, and that's a, the hard part of me is it's so subject to interpretation. Like I remember sitting in class and we'd all get the same paper with the same dots and then you'd put them up on a wall and they would look like a hundred different drawings and it's like again i had a hard time grasping that because I'm, I'm a numbers guy and it's like you know one or the other mm-hmm. nothing in between and it's funny because drilling fluids is kind of like that too because mm-hmm. it's you know it's it's recipes and ca- it's chemistry and it doesn't depending on what you're drilling through i mean there's so many different variables where there's a lot of gray area in, in drilling fluids so that was that, that's been the hardest part for me when I was in the field as a mud engineer and stuff like that is, is really, I didn't was like, you know, if I had it, if I had this much this day at this time and do the exact same thing tomorrow, the outcome is going to be different. So I have to figure out, you know, why and be, and accept it. Like you said, drilling fluids can be gray. Yeah. Just but, go Zen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So 
you have a passion for geology, you love business. How do you tie those two together into what you're doing now? I mean, you're at TGS, right? So tell us a little bit about your role there. Yeah, thanks for the shameless promotion. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, TGS is foremost a seismic company. They're they're very respected brand in the oil and gas industry from acquisition, interpretation, processing. And they also are one, one of, I think, one of the only seismic companies that has, as, as part of their company, a tie-in to geological well data. They purchased a company for the express reason of uh, calibrating their seismic using subsurface geological well data. Okay. So when I came on board, I'm on the well data side of TGS. So that's the geology side of a more geophysical based company. So they needed salespeople who could relate and understand the workflows for our clients in oil and gas, especially the seismic companies, uh, the operators who are dealing with seismic companies, right? and be able to understand what, what their pinch points are, what their pain is. So, I mean, it's great because you can go out and get a feel from all these different operators and all these different clients and, and understand where, where they're going, what they're doing and, and help them. And really if, if, you know, I love sales because it's, it's pretty simple. I had a buddy who had a gas detection company up in Calgary and he always said, you know, Justin sales is pretty simple. You find out what a client needs and then you sell it to them. Right. So using that, you go talk to clients, you and I are both very personable, you go chat them up and you know, and I know what we sell. So you ask them, are there, what's your need in, in our space? And then if their need matches what, what's on our shelf, there's a good chance they might buy from us. If the price is right, if the value is there, of course. Right. But you know, half of the reason, the other half is if they say, well, there's actually nothing on your shelf that I need, then that's easy too. Right. Don't, don't hound them. Right. No is the second best answer you could ever have. Oh, I, I love it. When people respond to an email or a call and just say, no, I don't need your service. I'll call you when I do. It's like, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for not leading me on. Yeah. Because <laughs> I hate that. Yeah. Let's not date anymore. Yeah. Obviously, we're not at that stage yet. And I'll go on. And if you ever need me, you know where I am. Right. Well, look, I want to take a minute and I, I bypassed a certain part of, of the topic that I wanted to touch on. So, Rewind yourself back now to, I don't know what age you were, but I noticed on your LinkedIn, you, you did some news broadcasting, so, some video, or some journal, news, something in that realm. Did you ever think when you're sitting in that position that you'd be here in Houston today? And, and, if, and if so, then you've got a pretty cool crystal ball. But if not, I mean, what, why did you not stick with that type of career in that Right. So what you're referring to is I started out with a degree, bachelor's degree in geology, and then I also have a degree in broadcast journalism. Okay. So this microphone is very familiar to me. So I started out as a, as a geologist, and then I went as a broadcast journalist reporter and worked in the business for a while. And now I'm back in the oil business. Right. So it seems kind of weird. And people always ask that. My route through broadcasting is is interesting in that when I started out in oil and gas in Calgary working, I worked on the rigs for many years and you worked on the rigs. We were talking about this earlier and I loved working on the rigs. It was, I love the fact that, you know, you, you went to the rig, you got your stuff done. And when you were done, you were done and you felt like you accomplished something, right? Right. And it was a great training ground, 
for a geologist because you understand all the processes of drilling for oil and gas. And you cannot trick me on anything at rig site. And so that was a very fundamental to my career and becoming an exploration geologist in the, in the city when I, when I went to Calgary and started working for that firm. And the other thing I said to you, and I'll, I'll censor it a bit because some of it you can't say on air, is that when I was young, I was promoted very quick because I had the gift of gab and I had the right credentials. And I went into the steel and glass of downtown Calgary, oil and gas. Right. And I loved everything about the job except the job itself. <laughs> yeah. So I loved the money. I loved the, the, the chatting with people in the office. I loved my motorbike. And I loved wearing fancy suits. And the actual job that I was given wasn't really what I loved. Right. And so my bosses had a hard decision to make and they... They ended up after a year taking me for a nice seafood dinner and then telling me, you know, you're fired. <laughs> you're doing a great job. We're paying you to party. You're done. Yeah. So, and everybody up in Calgary, if, if they listen to, to this podcast, if you're a sales guy or you're, a, you're a, a junior geologist or whatever, you get the lifestyle there. It was very fun if you're a single guy. Right. So I had a decision to make because here I was. My career was going great. I had the degree. I had everything, but I wasn't. I was. I was giving. I was giving signals from myself, my body actions, how I was doing things, that my my colleagues and my bosses were picking up. And it was, I don't want to be here. So I thought about it and I sat down. I think everybody should do this many times in their life because you do change careers. And and you know the stats these days with millennials is they might change careers. 10, 15 times in their lifetime. Right. Yeah. We were just talking about Change jobs, not careers. Right. So I decided, well, I like people. I like communicating. I liked certain aspects of the job. What type of job would fit all of those? And after a month of thinking about it, I decided that I wanted to, I'm very curious. I love, I love just random facts. You put me in front of Trivial Pursuit and watch out. Oh yeah. So I decided I wanted to get into broadcasting and it's a funny story actually. So in the lower mainland, and this is why I'm, I, I love sales and why I'm good at it is I know I'm not scared of going to find the right person to talk to them. Nobody's outside of my zone. You right. can be a CEO or you can be a mud logger and you get, you get the same respect from me. I wanted to get into broadcasting. So I said, okay, Who's good at broadcasting? And in Vancouver, the number one news anchor in Vancouver at the time was a guy named Tony Parsons. And Tony Parsons was, you know, the gray-haired kind of Walter Cronkite-looking dude. And he owned the market. And so I said, well, maybe I should ask him. Could I get into broadcasting? And what would be his recommendation for what school to go to, how to do it? Would he have any recommendations? Yep. So I just called up the station and said, I want to speak to Mr. Tony Parsons. (laughs) Nice. And his assistant in quotes, right. Got the message days later and I got a call back. Nice. And she said, Justin, Mr. Parsons said you can come in next week. Would this time be fine? I said, yeah, let's do it. So I walk in and here I am talking to the personality in, in broadcasting in the second largest market in Canada. And it was so great. He brings me into his office and he puts his feet up on the desk and he leans back 
very anchormanish. Yeah. It was a very anchormanish. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, listen, Mr. Parsons, you don't know me from a hole in the wall. I gave him my little bit on what I do. Yeah. And I said, I really just, I feel like I want to get into broadcasting. And he said, okay, well, there's a great school just down the road that uh, I know very well, BCIT's British Columbia Institute of Technology, much similar to SAIT in Alberta, but BCIT. Right. And they have a broadcast journalism group. Tell you what, I know some people there. I'll call one of them up. You can go visit them and get more information, see if you really want to do this. And then the rest is history. And I enrolled and I had to beat out a lot of other people to get into that class the next year. And, and then I went into it. So then I did that. And then from there, I went to work as a reporter in British Columbia in the central BC, a news reporter covering police, city hall, school board. No way. And then after that, I found out that my dad's Dutch. And if I want to get my Dutch citizenship, which I did because it meant access to a whole new job market in Europe because you're part of the European Union. Yeah. And any way you come in, you're in. If I needed to get my passport, Holland said, great, you can have your passport because your old man's Dutch, but you have to live here for a year. So I quit my job and flew over there huh. and lived over there for two years to get my Dutch citizenship. Do you still have it? Oh, Yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. I earned that one. Yeah. <laughs> I earned that one. No kidding. So I worked over there as a reporter, worked for actually some science and tech, did some reporting science and technology, and then for a videographer and all that. And then two years later, I came back to Canada. It was 2001. Gas was booming again. And I'd, I had left Wellside Geology and I came, my buddies were all driving you know, the F-150s jacked up. And yeah. The, you, you remember that? Everybody yeah. on the rigs had the great rides. And oh, the, yeah. And, and I had left that because I didn't, I didn't want to be part of that anymore. Mm -hmm. But my bank account said otherwise, and I needed a job. Right. So one of my buddies said, hey, I can get you in with uh, this Wellside Geology Company. Why don't you throw in your resume? And I went, oh, okay. So I put my resume in and kind of wincing like across the desk. Right. Two days later, back on the rig, working as a well-site geologist. So I've come full circle. But I knew this time as a well-site geologist, I wasn't going to be on the rig forever because I had too much experience. And if, you're, if you do broadcasting, for example, what I always say is, it's a great lesson. It's kind of like acting, right? So making first impressions, understanding who you're talking to, how to communicate with them. It's a two-year course on how to make a great first impression. Hmm. So I had all of this skill, soft skill set that I had built up from being in broadcasting and understanding human communication. Right. And so I knew it would just be a matter of time until I got back into business development sales on the oil and gas side. So that's what I did. And I started working for a company called RPS and RPS had well-site geologists in Canada and around the world moved up to be one of their operations BD guys. And then eventually they moved me down to Houston and that was in 2008. So Very that's cool. a long, that's a long winded answer that, uh, you know, I jumped around and eventually came back to get into the consulting side of the business. And, and, and I've been here for 11 years now in various capacities, working in BD, consulting, wellbore stability, that sort of thing. Gotcha. No, I mean, I appreciate the long drawn out answer. because I didn't think it was, it was drawn out. I mean, it, I think people can appreciate your story because it's, it's quite unique. And so I have sort of two questions. What was the biggest takeaway from that broadcasting and that experience that helps you today in your career? 
And the second part of the question is, what would you tell a young, ambitious salesman who's trying to get the competitive edge or just wants some good advice from someone like yourself who's clearly very successful in that space? Answer your first question is soft skills. Anybody can be technical. There's a lot of smart people out there. Mostly everybody's smarter than me on that side. But you think about how you got your jobs. You were telling me how you got your jobs. And a lot of your jobs are because of people you knew. Right. And they knew you were a good person. And the takeaway is when they think of Justin, you, Justin, and they walk away, it's not how much, oh, well, he did, he did Sate or whatever. They get an overall vibe from you. And then you mold that vibe into whatever, whatever you say, ah, Justin could do sales. He's a great guy. I like him. I can always teach him the hard stuff. So part two of the question is I always look for salespeople. If you really want to be in sales, I mean, everybody's a salesperson. You show me a person on the street and I'll prove to you that they already do sales. Right. They might not do it professionally, but they sell to their wife when they come home from, from work and they have to take out the garbage, but not right now, maybe a little bit later. They sell their kids. Their kids are great negotiators. They have to sell them on everything. Right. They buy a house. They're, they're selling. I mean, everything we do in life is, is dialogue. Right. It's all transactions. <laughs> right. It's all transactions. Yeah. So I think to be a good salesperson, number one, you have to be passionate about your product and really believe in it. Because if you don't believe in your product, people can see it. They can smell it. Right. Yeah. People can smell bullshit a mile away. Exactly. So pick a product you like and you believe in. And then just be yourself. And if you have the gift of gab and you like talking to people and you like going out and doing after work in quotes stuff, then just be yourself and, and it'll come. And you can always take sales courses. And, you know, I've been in, I've been in the industry now probably about 24 years. And I don't know, you know, that's nature versus nurture with sales. And I'm slowly leaning to, I think it's an 80-20 nature. You either are personable and like doing this or you don't because you can't force someone after a full day in the office of attending a Houston Geological Society event, (laughs) right? Unless you want to meet people because you can go home and relax and put your feet up and talk with your kids and wife. I like doing that still, of course, but I also feel this need to get out and to network Yep, and Oil and gas is so interesting. There's so many interesting people and just finding out what people are doing in, in the, in the space is just great. Yeah. Well, and there's so everything is, is connected, right? And when you say you're in an oil and gas career, it could mean anything. And so just like I was explaining to you earlier, like I got an opportunity to go to a reservoir conference. Does a drilling fluid guy need to go to a reservoir conference? Absolutely not. But is there an opportunity to meet someone that otherwise I would have never got the chance? Hell yeah. So mm-hmm. again, I mean, it's just, it's the opportunities are endless. If you, if you're okay with putting yourself out there from, you know, and, and in sales now we talked about, you know, LinkedIn, building your brand, just the ability to, to get your fingers in, in everything you possibly can. Yeah. It's an exciting time, especially tying in technology to what we do today is it's fascinating. So talking about technology, I want to shift back a little bit onto the geology side of things. What type of technological advancements have you seen in your career with regards to obtaining and analyzing subsurface data? Well, I mean, the, just, just the sea change in going from conventional drilling to unconventional, right? When you and I were up in Calgary working on the rigs in, in the Western Canadian sedimentary basin, 
2008, 2005 kind of started. We were getting into horizontals and then steering, geosteering. And then it slowly filtered its way south into Texas. So when I moved in 2008, the geosteering and the, and the unconventionals was just starting to pick up. So I would say now it's more of a mining operation in oil and gas than oil and gas operation. And I'll explain that. When you go vertical and, you know, I sell well logs, right? So our well logs are basically a history of the, of the lithology as you go to depth, to TD. Well, if you look at a well log, you can say, okay, I start out and I'm going through a bit of shale and then I hit a sandstone and then I might hit like a, you know, a dolomite depending where I am and I'll go back to a shale, blah, blah, blah. It's like a layer cake, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're going through a layer cake, it's very, very discrete zones that you need to pay attention to. And you might be going after a little layer, the strawberry layer in a layer cake, that's maybe a foot, if it's a big cake, yeah, a foot, a foot thick. Right. Well, if you now switch that and you're unconventional drilling, you are going down to the strawberry layer and you're riding that strawberry layer for the next five days. So you're never going to see anything but strawberry. You don't want to hit chocolate above and you don't want to hit vanilla below. And you're just geosteering in that strawberry layer. Right. So a lot of the tools and the skill sets that geologists and geophysicists were using when they were going vertical and conventional are now kind of dying on the vine. And you have to think about the completions and production and steering aspect. And that becomes more technical and it becomes more engineering focused. So how do I maximize my return on the strawberry layer? How many wells can I pound out in this pad? What kind of fracking am I doing? And it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, the, the term wildcat is almost non-existent now. Right. Because if you and I were to walk outside in the parking lot, pretty much guarantee if we drilled far enough down, we could find the hydrocarbon in the shale. And then we just go horizontal. So unconventionally speaking, everywhere in Houston, you could probably drill for oil. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you just, you just strip it out and you pull out the mass quantities but if, if, you know, 20 years ago we were to walk out in the parking lot, you might not hit that one foot sandstone layer and then you're, you're out of luck and you truly are wildcatting. So your, your risk goes from very high in conventional to very low in terms of exploration in, in unconventional. And that requires better data, better analysis and, and better technology. Right. Well, let me ask you this. How do you think AI will play a role in the future of subsurface data? I mean, is that a thing? That I mean, is that big data and all that those big buzzwords that you hear floating around the oil field? Is that something that you're sort of seeing on your end? Oh, I mean, huge right now. I think the next revolution is machine learning AI. The clients that 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 we talk to and, you know, TGS has we know every client in the business. They all come to us for for well data and seismic, of course, but we've created our own data and analytics group because we saw a need for analysis of the data we provide. So again, if I love using metaphors and everybody at work bugs me because I always synthesize this and try to try to dumb it down and make it simple. But if you take all the well data, imagine all of the, all of the tops picked and all the lithologies and and all of the all of the sonic, the resistivity curves, all of that data. Imagine that being ingredients in your kitchen, right? Yeah. So we 
are the number one provider of ingredients for people to bake cakes in the industry. But we, we, we didn't bake cakes for a long time. Operators would take our ingredients, all of the subsurface geological well data and seismic data, and they would apply their own recipe using our data and then build interpretive maps, apply their algorithms and get analysis from all of our ingredients. Well, we started to see that there was opportunity for us to not just provide the ingredients, but to provide the recipes and build the cake for some clients. Because these days with private equity, you might be a small shop. You might have two people on your G&G team and you have a private equity company that says, I'm giving you this money in five years from now, I want you to turn a profit. Well, you don't have time if you're a small guy playing in the Permian to build up your G&G staff to bake your own cakes. Makes sense, yeah. So we help you bake those cakes so you can get a head start, so you can hit the ground running, and you're 60% on your way to looking in the areas that you think are now where you can play. So we'll do high-level maps, show you you know, basin temperatures, we'll show you facies, all of that stuff, and, and then we give you a high-level understanding of where you can start to poke your hole. Or buy, buy up acreage, wow. that sort of thing. Okay. So we kind of provide treasure maps for oil and gas companies looking to poke holes. But I always use the kitchen analogy, the baking, the ingredients versus the cake. Right. Do most operators utilize services like yours or do a lot of folks have their stuff in-house? I mean, who's your target audience? Is it the majors, the large caps? I mean, or is it just kind of a mix of everybody? So if, if you are your own company and you are drilling your own well, when you employ a Schlumberger or a Halliburton to log your well, the data that they pull out of that hole is, the, is your data. So it's, it's proprietary. So you can always, if you have a big exposure, like say, you know, XTO in the Permian or, you know, now Chevron with the Anadarko deal. (laughs) Right. If you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of well locations, you have your own library that you can use to further your understanding of the subsurface and explore from and and pick more, more holes to, to poke. Right. If you don't have an access to your own proprietary well data library, where do you look? Right. Yeah. You look for companies who do that for a living and that's like TGS. Gotcha. So we source all of our data from public sources, from state. Right. And we also source our data from our clients. We buy some data. We do a lot of different, we have about eight or nine sources that we, that we use. Okay. Then we get those ingredients in, we standardize them to a specific, like if all the logs are the same, they're all calibrated, depth corrected, all that stuff. And then a client you know, Bob's oil in the Permian, he can come to us and he can walk into that kitchen and go, okay, I want ingredients here, here, here. I'll take that cake built with those ingredients. So now he has access to all of our stuff and and we provide it to him. I gotcha. So I'm trying to ask a question. So in, in Canada, a guy can go into the OGC basically building and pull well data from any well that's drilled. It's all public knowledge here it's different. So if on the drilling side, if I'm looking for offsets, mm-hmm. it's either I've drilled it or my buddy gives me bit records or the operator just so happens to be super nice and provides me with well information from You mean offset. in Canada or in, in, in the States? Yeah. In the States. So right. like you said, you have a few different sources to gather data. So do you guys have all the data or is it only stuff that like operators were willing to put on the public market or like how does that sort of work? And yeah, then- that's a, that's a common question. So 
we would love to have all the data right. because he who has the most information wins. Of course. We don't have all the data. What we do have is the best techniques for getting access to all the data that is available. Sure. Our okay. library is global and it's the number one well data library. Now, specifically talking to geological, we're not talking about the, the seismic. We have a huge seismic library, but I'm, I'm more on the geology side because I'm a geologist and, and I'm on the well data for TGS. Okay. But, but we have, especially in North America, by far 10 to 1, the most data for our clients to come and use if, if they want to use it for exploration purposes. Okay. Now, you can, like I said, you can source it a million ways. And here's an example. So by law, you are required, say it's Justin's Oil Company and you're poking a hole. Once you log your well by law in the state of Texas, you are required to submit a well log to the Railroad Commission. Now, if you know anything about well logging, there's more than one log that comes out of the hole after you spend all that money. You, you have multiple logs, multiple runs of different tools, your sonics, your resistivities, your gammas, all of that stuff. But you're only required by law to give them one log. So I could give a cement bond log. I could give resistivity track from a log to the Railroad Commission. And it becomes public for anybody to go there, go to that courthouse, pull that log, and you get it. Problem is, what about all those other logs Right. That were included in that specific well out in the middle of, you know, DeWitt County or something. Sure. How do I, as Justin's oil company, get access to all those? Well, that's where we help. Okay. So we either have relationship with the original owner of that well who drilled it, and we get access to all his data through data swaps, for example. We do data swaps. So we uh, might have we might have oregano on our shelf and you need rosemary. Well, We'll, we'll take, we'll, we'll trade you an oregano for a rosemary and then we'll build up our suite of logs and make them as, as good as possible. So we'll flesh out each well with all of the available subsurface data that we can find. Gotcha. So if a company uses you, and this is just out of my curiosity, actually, because this is always something that I've, I've was curious about going from Canada to the U S is, is the amount of public data differs completely, but let's say I'm an oil company and I want to use you guys. Are you required or like, say I'm a company, you, entire, you gather data for me. Is it then public for everyone else? Or is it like, oh, this is my data? Or how does that work? So that is, so say you have a whole bunch of the excess log data that is not publicly available. We've already gone to the Railroad Commission and pulled one of those logs. So we have that. And we've cleaned it up, depth corrected it, calibrated everything, right? Then we go to you and we go, we want the rest of that log suite, Mr. Client. And he goes, well, he'll either say, no, I, I'm not giving it away. It's mine. Get lost, which happens a lot because you could be imagine. in a sensitive area and you might have a big exploration campaign that's going on for the next two years and you don't want to give that to your competitor. Right. But there's other areas where they might say, mm, I'm kind of on the fence. Well, how do we get around that? Well, that's where, you know, sales comes in and you say to the guy, listen, what if I take your paper logs and there's, I can see them, they're, they're sitting in your office and they're a typical geologist, it's scattered and you got rolls of paper and all that junk. I'll take all of that, I'll clean it up, I'll digitize it, I'll give back to you a copy of that digitally so you can get rid of all this stuff. The proviso is we at TGS get a copy 
of that log as well. So I give a digital to you, I get a digital, and then at an agreed upon date, maybe right away or maybe a year from now, when it actually is public and it's not as useful anyway, we are allowed to use that data to bake cakes with. Gotcha. Okay. No, that makes sense. Look, we've all pretty much burned through the hour. So there's a few other things I want to make note of here. So I did want to mention, we got a nice review in this week. This one comes from PM Lloyd 16, who says, super grateful for the podcast. This info gives anyone and everyone good stuff to learn about the industry. Thank you from Midland, Texas. Appreciate the love, M. Lloyd. Again, hit me up. If you're ever in Houston, look me up. Let's grab a coffee. Now it's time for our sponsor giveaway. Tendeka is known for their innovation and completions technology, and they're giving away a mini, mini portable projector, perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, and pocket video for a chance to win click the link in the show notes and we'll announce the lucky winners as they come in i want to mention our events coming up we've got to join the oil and gas global networks monthly happy hours which happen every last tuesday of the month at the cannon here in houston we've got the api sporting clay shoot that's coming up may 4th here in houston and of course everybody knows about otc coming up may 6th to 9th here in houston and also, anyone want to join me for breakfast on May 7th? I'll be in the Houstonian with our sponsor, Tindeka, who will be hosting a breakfast, along with discussions around their Pulse 8 wireless intelligent completion system and further new technologies. If you're interested, please email Suzanne Stewart at Suzanne.Stewart at Tindeka.com. We'll also put our email in the show notes so you can click the link. I also want to mention the OKC F5, a.k.a. Fin, Feather, and Fur. That'll happen Friday, October 11th, 2019 at the Heritage Place, Oklahoma City, sorry, in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And, and the reason I want to mention this, it's relatively new for the Oklahoma region. So uh, show them some love and go onto the AADE website and look up the MidCon chapter or hit up Courtney Strang with Inwell for more details. And anyone out there in Houston interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old-timer hockey. We do it every three weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. So hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And again, if you're looking to get in shape for the summer because it's coming around the corner, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. And Justin, I want to do a quick plug for you and you because you and your family are involved in fitness as well, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's nice. Appreciate that. Yeah. So why don't you tell the listeners what it is and, and then I'll put the link in the show notes with just a brief explanation. We're running out of time. So just a quick plug if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. So we run a Legree Fitness Studio in the Heights. Cool. And Legree, for those who don't know, is it's like Pilates, but a Ferrari-fied version of it. It's Pilates on steroids. Nice. Reformers. And it's Fire Fitness, F-Y-R-E. And you can go to, uh, you can catch us on Instagram at firefitlegree, all one word. Perfect. Well, I'll put the link in the show notes. And again, for all the listeners, thanks for listening to Oil & Gas On Shore. If you're looking for more info, visit oilandgasonshore.com. Justin, thanks again for joining me today. What's the best way for people to reach out to you to either ask more about your services or get to know more about your company? Best thing to do is you can go to our website, tgs.com. Perfect. Or you can go on LinkedIn and just look me up and you can message me there. Perfect. I'll put both links in the show notes. Well, folks, that's a wrap. And always remember, when the density's up and the gas is town, open the choke. Let's go to town. Ooh-wee. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 